But before we get going, um, I think it's fair to open up with a dictionary definition of what centrism is. Centrism is a political ideology, although many people, including myself, um, feel as though it is more of a political identity and not an ideology. And I'll explain a little while after um, why it, it might it might just be an identity more than an ideology. Um, a standard dictionary definition of the word centrist is, quote, having moderate political views or policies, and the noun is a person who holds moderate political views. So, moderate political views. Now, there have been some very famous centrists um, in our history, and the craziest thing about centrism is that a lot of people don't know that some of their favorite lefty people happen to be very, very very proud centrists. Uh, people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton um, have expressed, you know, uh, sentiments of, of themselves calling themselves, you know, uh, the middle or, or fair, right? And that really gets in the way of policies that they themselves socially might be for, but then politically have a hard time negotiating because if they were to negotiate it, they would lose their status as centrists. And this is why people like myself and a lot of political scientists have argued that centrism cannot be an ideology because you constantly borrow from different ideologies and trade them when it is politically convenient um, in exchange for, uh, be it popularity, be it more votes from people who typically wouldn't vote for you, uh, basically political clout. You trade in what you say you believe in for attention, uh, which is kind of politics in general, but like 10 times worse. It is, it is the crap, think of the crappiest things. Think about all the things you hate about politics and then put it in a blender because that is what centrism is. One of my favorite articles written recently about centrism um, is called The Problem with Centrism is that it might get us all killed. And it's written by Kate Aronoff and it is on the uh, In These Times blog, which full disclosure is a left-leaning blog. I'm going to be very open and honest with you, friends. We are no lying, cheating, um, or undisclosures here, okay? We are going to be very honest with each other. It is a left-leaning blog, um, but it is incredibly... And refreshingly, I should say, uh, critical of people like Kristen Gillibrand, Bernard Sanders of Vermont, Elizabeth Warren, and Senators Kamala Harris and uh, Cory Booker, who are the proud, I guess, lefty cool kids of the Democratic Party. Um, they are people who, and I will go into using Kamala Harris um, and Bernard Sanders as examples of, of why they might just be a little closer to the center than they think, and why the identity of centrism is very, very useful for politicians like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Um, I will go into that a little after I go into explaining um, just a bit more of the definition in case some people might get confused. Um, a centrist is someone who espouses a middle ground when it comes to government of control, um, government control of things like the economy and people's social behaviors, things like people getting abortions or people deciding to get married because duh, those things are social problems and not private problems of the people doing them. Um, depending on what we're talking about here, um, they can sometimes favor government intervention, but then other times refuse to. So you see this with people like Barack Obama insisting that he should interfere in places um, like the Middle East 
but then being incredibly hesitant to interfere with the Flint, Michigan water crisis because of how that would look politically. And this is where a lot of the people who call themselves centrists actually hold incredibly, uh, how do you say, leaning um, views towards the right. They are people who actually have um, no problem with um, nationalism, modern day imperialism, the concept of white saviorism, and a little bit of classism. And the reason that this sucks, other than the reason of what I just listed, is that these people get away with socially being accepted as progressive. But then when it comes time to put pen to paper, their policies don't reflect it. And it, just, it goes both ways, you know, vice versa. People can say things like, I am a centrist, and say I'm for the middle ground, because it prevents them from taking bold actions. It prevents them from being held accountable uh, for grand solutions. Because the problems we face, income inequality and climate change for starters, um, are really big problems. And they are problems that have accumulated decades and decades and decades and decades. And the solutions to them are not going to be small. They are not going to be solutions that can be com compromised. And the problem with centrists is that they spend a lot of the time worrying about performance and perception rather than policy, right? And you see this with um, uh, the conversation right now surrounding reparations. So if you are not familiar with the concept of reparations, I really do implore you, and this is probably the only time I'm going to um, advertise another person's writing who doesn't write for us, because Ta-Nehisi Coates can afford his own publicity. But Ta-Nehisi Coates has written a beautiful essay um, called The Case for Reparations. And basically the idea being that African-Americans who have dealt with slavery or who are descendants of slavery have been pulled back so far back in terms of progress that it would be inconceivable uh, to call them, you know, equal to any white American person um, who, regardless of whether they're poor themselves, um, in terms of the opportunity of uh, equality and the opportunity of the outcomes that they would like in life. Um, if you think about life as a racetrack and you have runners and everyone's supposed to start on the starting line, um, slavery caused African-American people to be pulled back a hundred feet away from the starting line, right? And slavery brought about a bunch of eugenics. It brought a bunch about um, lynchings. It brought up uh, a lot of um, economic disparity. And that stuff gets heavy over time. It really does weigh on a person, especially if you are someone who, um, whose family like, has a direct lineage to slavery. You have never been able to accumulate wealth. And, and I know that slavery is the big concept that that concept of, uh, of reparations comes from. But if you think about uh, the New Deal during the Eisenhower administration, um, the Eisenhower presidency, the New Deal was essentially socialism. And it gave Americans who were destitute because of the war the ability to purchase a home with the help of the government, which if you're thinking, oh my God, that's welfare, you're right, it was totally welfare. Um, giving white American families um, some money to buy a house and with a house comes equity and with equity comes wealth. And the cool thing about owning property, which if you paid attention in eighth grade history class, African Americans were not allowed to own property for a very long time. If you have property, you are able to pass it down to your children and your children's children will have something. 
And that's not a thing within the African-American community. There are very few people who can say that this property belonged to my ancestor and it's something that I can actually sell and, 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 and use, right? There are tons of people who are the first in their families to ever own a home. And that's incredibly tough, especially in an economy where the young people who are the first in their family to buy a home also have to pay off student loans and have to deal with things like the wage gap and the, uh, the racial wealth gap. Um, which, like I said, Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, the lefties, have spoken about, and it's, it's something that we'll go into. But the case for reparations, and, and I'm going to sort of tie it in here, really does insist on leveling the playing field, right? And recently, because everybody and their mother is running for president in 2020, uh, a lot of senators were asked, or some of them weren't asked, they just commented because they don't want to be left out of the party, um, about how they feel about the concept of, uh, of reparations and, and how they would implement them. Would they implement them? Why would we implement them? Um, it was really, and this is me just being a cynic here, I think it was really more of a test. And the, the reason I think it was a test is because we've never really been able to have these conversations before, right? With Barack Obama, everyone was just happy that a black man was getting somewhere and that white people really liked him too. Right? So there wasn't any um, conversation about social policies that would directly uh, favor African Americans because policies that went against them were specifically for African Americans. So policies that are for them should go specifically to African Americans. The remedy has to be equal to the conflict that happened. But because people are afraid of, of, of sort of, people give in to white panic and white fear very, very easily. Right? And that is why Barack Obama gave a now pretty famous speech. Um, if you are too young to remember it, then um, I suggest you look it up on YouTube because it is kind of powerful. He claims that he is not the president of, of black America or white America. And Bernard Sanders recently, and I keep calling him Bernard. Um, I should probably just call him Bernie, but I don't know him like that. But Bernie Sanders was asked and he said that he would think it was divisive. And that line of thinking, even though there are totally different people, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, one of them being, you know, a half white, half black, Hawaiian born senator from Illinois turned president of the United States versus a very old white guy from Vermont who was a democratic socialist. They're two very different people, but they have a similar messaging about policies that would specifically favor African-Americans, and that is that they are afraid it will be divisive. And the concept of, oh, I don't want to stoke any fires and I don't want to poke the bear because it's divisive is a concept that's invoked by a lot of people who either identify or have been sort of, I guess, I don't want to use the word outed, but have been uh, portrayed and openly called out as, as people with centrist views. And so... This is all to say that a centrist can say something like abortion should be legal, but only during situations that are, you know, really bad, like rape or the mother's life is in danger, you know? And that's, that's tough because that in itself is problematic, right? And centrists have a problem with, you know, formidable action against climate change. They say things like, oh, um, I agree with the fact that climate change is happening, but I don't think we should invest this much into it, or I don't think this much is necessary. If you've been paying attention to um, latest hotshot and woman crush Wednesday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who is the rep of Bronx and the Queens, 
for the U.S. House, she has gone about um, explaining her Green New Deal, which maybe we'll do an episode on. I feel like there's a lot of fake news on it. Um, but essentially, she speaks about things like a basic minimum guaranteed income, which is something that even Republicans like Richard Nixon flirted with. Look it up. Google it. Um, and people really told her that she was doing too much. They said, look, we agree with climate change, but I just don't think people should be given the minimum wage. And that is, excuse me, not a minimum wage, a minimum basic income. Meaning if you don't work, you'll be guaranteed this amount of a livable um, amount of money um, in, I guess, the interim of you working. And that was shot down by a lot of people in the Democratic Party, including every white woman's hero, Miss Nancy Pelosi. Now, Nancy Pelosi, who I think we could probably give our own episode to, is someone who is, she benefits from, and this is the part of centrism that'll really hurt, that'll really get in your craw, is that Nancy Pelosi gets to ride the wave of progressivism, right? A lot of these people, be it Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Nancy Pelosi, really get to be worshipped as progressive. And then they get to talk at progressive forums and they get to be called progressive policymakers. Then they commit to policies or write policies or refuse to comment on policies that they find, what's the word? Like doing too much, like doing the most. Like to a lot of Democrats right, who say that they are the party of race, who say that they are the party of black people, who say that they are the party of the People of Colors Coalition, a lot of them really have a hard time wrapping their head around reparations as a probable solution to the racial wealth gap and to income inequality in the United States. And a lot of people have a hard time thinking of probable and comparable solutions to climate change, to the monster that is the warming planet and the fact that this planet will be here, but it'll be unlivable. And that's really a tough thing for people who sit on, I guess, the more progressive side of the left spectrum because they get to benefit it from it anyway, right? You get to have, and I will call him out day and night, but my country's own Justin Trudeau, he is someone who was worshipped as a feminist because of his, I guess, boyish charm and his ability to hire women. Um, because anybody who hires women is automatically a feminist, right? He is someone who has yet to implement uh, policies to support indigenous women who face things like, yes, sterilization, uh, being forced uh, to get themselves sterilized in, in Canada, of all places. And it's very hard to reconcile those two things. It is very, very hard to reconcile those two things. The idea that you can benefit from the title of progressivism, because everybody wants to be progressive, right? Everybody wants to seem woke. Everybody wants to be down for the fight. But nobody wants to pay the bill when the bill comes. And you know who's really good at avoiding the bill? (laughs) Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, and Justin Trudeau. Now, some of the world's most famous centrists happen to have... I don't want to say come of age because they're really old white dudes, but they had their political grace during a time where the world was living with extremes, right? So you had people like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, 
Clinton being president of the United States when Tony Blair was the uh, UK prime minister. They were really famous for being centrists during a time of war in Europe. There was war against um, uh, minority groups in what we now call Bosnia. And in the United States, there were terrorist attacks, domestic terrorist attacks uh, by white supremacists. And um, a lot of school shootings uh, started to, to pile up in the 90s. And so Bill Clinton and Tony Blair were worshipped for being centrists in a time where it seemed like the world was living on two very different ends. And that is a lot to deal with. And contextually, it makes perfect, perfect sense. Of course, if you have school shootings and systemic genocide, you want the guy who's sitting in the middle to be your friend. You don't want to hang out with the right-wingers who are defending um, these bombs against uh, abortion clinics or gay nightclubs, but you don't want to sit next to these lefties who insist on genocide. So you want to sit with the guys in the middle. And it helps, it really does help, that in a time of a little bit of a teeny tiny economic crisis during the 90s, that the two coolest guys in the middle happen to be the leaders of the two most powerful countries in the world. And the reason that I think it's important to note people like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair as the world's, I guess, most famous centrists is because they don't make sense today, right? A figure like a Bill Clinton and a Tony Blair made sense in the 90s, although we could go into day and night, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair sins. And maybe for the fun of it, we'll just talk about Bill Clinton. Um, but we don't need a Bill Clinton right now. We don't need a Tony Blair right now. The problems that we face are actually incredibly huge. And centrism is not going to cut it, right? The idea of being a calm, soothing voice is not going to cut it, right? The world is dying and wars are starting and wars are still ongoing and the wealth gap between the world's richest and the world's poorest keeps getting wider and wider. There is no time for someone to come and sit down and say, I am the voice of reason. I am the smartest because I sit in the middle and I know everybody and I get along with everybody. And that last bit, the I get along with everybody, if you are going to take away anything from this podcast, I really hope you take away that. The concept of performance in politics is not a new one. Not by any means necessary. It is a very, very, very old concept that kind of like, I don't know, like a zombie, like comes back to life every once in a while and reminds you why you wish it were dead. Because... There is a lot of grandstanding and you have people, next time you turn on MSNBC or CNN or I don't know, CBC, whoever you watch, BBC, I don't care. Um, next time you turn it on um, and you have a politician, whether it's a representative, a member of parliament or a senator, see how many times they say, you know, my, I get along with my friends across the aisle or this bipartisan bill, right? That is performance. That is not actual policy at play, right? If you're a senator and you have senator friends, who is surprised, right? And this was a conversation that kept coming back up again um, in the recent deaths of uh, Senator John McCain and President George H.W. Bush. A lot of these men and a lot of the people who they left 
um, really prided themselves on getting along. You had many Democrats, uh, particularly Joe Biden, um, come out and talk about how he was able to get along so well with someone like John McCain, how they were the best of friends. And that's nice, I suppose. You know, Joe Biden and what's his name, John McCain, hanging out is not really any of my business, right? I don't care what John McCain and Joe Biden do on the weekends. But when it comes to sitting in the Senate, I sure as hell hope Joe Biden is fighting John McCain. And this is why centrism becomes an issue. Joe Biden, bless his Delawarean heart. Is that how you say it? Delawarean? Delawarees? I don't know. Someone from Delaware, correct me. But the senator from Delaware and former vice president really does pride himself on lecturing people on the left on how to be nice to folks on the right. And there is a lot of victimization of people who sit in right-wing politics, and we'll probably get into that later. I feel like I've said later in this episode so many times now, forgive me, but there's a lot to cover here, but I'm trying to make it incredibly concise by giving you guys this example of Joe Biden and, and John McCain. A lot of these politicians pride themselves on being able to be friendly with the opposition. Now, that would be really nice, except John McCain has signed, passed, and been a part of a lot of bills that have harmed the people that Joe Biden says he's for, right? How are you going to say that you got along with a guy that made it hard for people to get health care until his final vote that ruined, um, I guess, Trump care or whatever Donald Trump thought he was going to get from that Senate vote? That was when John McCain did the iconic thumbs down. Um, John McCain did try his damn hardest, though, to ruin the Affordable Care Act. Let's not forget that almost every Republican did their best and are still, still in courts, still in the courts, trying to take away what's left of the Affordable Care Act, the only version of healthcare available to people in the United States who aren't veterans or are on Medicare. That is, that is obvious. It's not hidden, right? John McCain, when that, you see when you watch TV or, or you're watching, I don't know if you watch C-SPAN, but I do because it's kind of fun. You can make fun of me. That little R that comes underneath their names. It's not a secret. It's incredibly, incredibly real. It's in your face. They go to CPAC, right? The little conservative get-together that uh, American politicians and media go to. They get money from certain political groups. They are very open and honest about where they come from, and they unapologetically toe the party line. Even though people from the states that these people represent, be it from the House or from the Senate, even though they need health care just as much, their entire political brand did not have uh, space for, I guess, socialized medicine, even though if you study the Affordable Care Act, it's actually not as socialized as people want to think. It does a lot of free market stuff, but I don't have time to explain. This is not an economics class. Um, Joe Biden spent more time telling people on the left to understand the people that John McCain represents more than the time that he spent criticizing him about his votes. If you pride yourself on getting along with the people who try to make healthcare very hard for people to obtain, for people who make voting really hard, Republicans are the party in the United States who gerrymander and who insist on draconian 
voting procedures to, let's face it, not let black and brown people and poor people be able to vote. They are the people who give tax breaks because that's their economic, um, I guess, their viewpoint of the world, that the rich deserve a lot and the poor don't. And if we give the rich a lot, hopefully it'll trickle down to the poor, but we know that's not how the world works. Um, they are the people who pride themselves on being friendly with the billionaire class. They are the ones who are friends um, with the NRA and the people who make school shootings very, very easy to happen because they constantly sabotage any efforts to make it harder for people who don't, who should not have guns in their hands, in their hands. I could go on, I could go on and on and on and on and on about what the Republican Party stands for. And I could just as easily name all the Republicans um, who, who have who have stayed true to this? There are a few, right? Not every Republican. Some 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 of them have been bold and brave. Some of them have said uh, and done things that got them kind of in trouble with their parties. And and I'm not going to reward people for following morality. All right, we don't give cookies or handouts on this podcast. But um, I can just as easily name the Democrats who pride themselves on getting along with. The same Republicans who make it hard for their constituents to do anything. What does that say about you as a politician? What does it say about you as a person, period? Right? If you are able to say, look, I really understand the people making it hard for my people to do stuff. Why would you, why would you think that's okay? Like, why, would you, why would you want this? Right? And the answer to that really is, and I'm not a political scientist, I really do think it is a performance it is an identity it is a look at me i'm so much better than those people over there and those people over there because i get you and look if you're a political commentator that's kind of cool if you want to you know you want to be rachel maddow girl you'd be rachel maddow you know if you want to do certain things you do certain things if you want to write an op-ed write an op-ed but if you are forging policy if you are making decisions that affect my life I do not want to know how well you get along with the people who want to ruin my life. The world is dying, okay? I don't know how many times I have to talk about climate change and environmental justice, but I will say it until I'm blue in the face. The world is not going to be habitable in a very, very short period of time from now. And the people who will experience that first, like all good crises, are the poorest people the people who live in rural neighborhoods and areas, and people of color. And if you, as a politician, Canada, the United States, the European Union, I don't really care. But if you're a politician and you pride yourself on getting along with the people, and that's not even just like a personal thing, like, oh, like, yeah, I had dinner with the senator from the opposing side of the aisle last night. It's more of a, look at me, I'm a bipartisan. It's, a, it's like a chest-beating thing. It's a, I'm so cool because I can understand. Why would you want to brag about being able to understand the people who deny that environmental justice is necessary because climate change doesn't exist, right? What is the intelligible reason for that what is the what is the you know political upside to that other than appearances centrism doesn't rule out a lot of messes it lets a lot of messes go on right that's how you end up with people um equating certain political groups 
That's how you end up with people comparing Nazis to certain groups of people. That's how you end up with people um, really not making commitments to causes. And the less commitments to causes you make, the more likely you are to be invited to more stuff. Think about it. The more succinct you are with your political views, the more honest you are. Like, for example, I don't do big banks, uh, free Palestine, Black Lives Matter. Um, I think we should tax billionaires more. You are just getting into beef with those people even more now. Right? The people who don't support those groups now have it out again, now have it out for you. Again, they will not be inviting you to dinners or to give million dollar speeches because you have made it very clear what you stand for. But centrists don't really stand for anything other than the appearance of I'm the middle, I'm sensible, and I get along with everybody. If you get along with everybody, you have secured yourself a ticket to every speaking gig ever. And that is why I really do believe, and I and other political scientists, um, and I will probably end up writing a piece about this on the website uh, linking the political scientists who've gone extensively to talk about this and research this, they are leaving open a lot of opportunities for themselves and advancing their careers. The question then becomes, then what policies have you accomplished? Right? What do you, what do we, what do we end up with in a world governed by centrists? What you end up with is a lot of half-assed policies and social policies. So the reason the Affordable Care Act gets knocked by a lot of um, healthcare activists is because it didn't go far enough. And the reason it didn't go far enough is because a lot of concessions were made. A lot of deals were made. And look, I am not a politician. I don't even know if I want to be one, but I totally get backroom deals. Do I like them? No. Do I get them? Sure. But a lot of people's health care was compromised because of that. Right? Because the need to appear like you're getting along with people is super powerful. Right? And that is that is tough because you end up valuing people's feelings over the lives of the people who voted for you and the people you claim to want to help. It also looks like really crappy immigration policy. I know that with the child separation policy and the zero tolerance policy that left a lot of people um, honestly traumatized and, and heartbroken and still in a bit of shock. I, we really, like, a lot of us really still can't believe that that actually happened and that there are kids who have still not been reunited with their parents. But immigration wasn't exactly 100%, you know, spanking awesome under the Obama administration either. But the Obama administration had to make concessions. It had to make policy, um, you know, leave a lot of things out of, of, of immigration policies because... Because if you did go, right, as far as to say, look, we are not prosecuting anybody who has lived in this country for a very long time, grown a community, financially supported a family, has children. If you go as far as to say absolutely not, you will leave people like the dreamers alone. What you end up with is Republicans being able to go on TV and saying, look at this person who loves open borders. And why, as a Democrat, instead of your... Instead of defending your position, um, you succumb to the TV cable news epidemic yelling at you and you just say, you know, right, you're right. And you change policies. And so you don't defend immigrants as hard because you don't want it used against you because you want to upkeep the appearance. You don't defend healthcare as hard because you want to upkeep the appearance. 
And that is the most dangerous aspect of centrism because it will do the bare minimum and then ask for a pat on the back because everybody loves it. And that is, I don't know if I've said this word already, but that is terrifying, terrifying that we probably will not be able to achieve a lot of the policy initiatives that would, I don't want to say fix because that, that, that deems it too quickly, um, but, but start to mend a lot of the issues we face now. We might not get those because everybody is too afraid to piss someone off. Everybody is too afraid of appearing um, too, too left, right? And the reason this breaks my heart Right. And I am going to. I don't know. (laughs) Am I going to cry? Maybe the reason this breaks my heart is because people like Mitch McConnell, people like Theresa May, people like Andrew Scheer. Right. Conservative from the United States, conservative from the UK, conservative from Canada. They do not go out of their way to appear in pictures smiling with liberals. They don't. They don't go out of their way to shake hands with their lefty opponents left-wing folks, right? They will go out of their way to be the party of, I get you, and I'm cool, and we're friends, and I love everyone. And the problem with that is you have a choice as to who you value in your party. People on the right have made it incredibly clear that a certain race, a certain gender, a certain identity, a certain class of people matter. And if people on the left spent as much time explaining or defending, I should say, if they spent as much time defending the right to vote as they did explaining that not all Republicans are racist because they don't want black people to vote, then a lot of people would have the right to vote. If, if, if Republicans, um, if, excuse me, if, if right-wing people and... and um, you know, anybody around the world, I just don't want this to seem American, but I feel like an American example is very potent right now, considering their political situation. But if if liberals, I should say, because they're in, we have the liberal party in my country and they're the current, um, current ruling party of the government, if liberals spent as much time worrying about economic issues as they did telling us not to demonize wealthier people, um, then perhaps there'd be less of a wealth gap. Perhaps income inequality would get smaller and smaller. And like I said earlier, a lot of what we want to achieve might not be possible if every centrist in the world keeps coming back and explaining that we should, we should aspire to be in the middle. And I hate to break it to you, ladies and gentlemen, but the middle is pretty freaking useless. No good has ever come from being in the middle. And the the sad thing is a lot of people really think that you can be in the middle on topics of people's liberation in life. There is no middle ground for thinking that it is okay to fire someone because they are gay. There is no middle ground on rules surrounding employers sexually assaulting their employees. Right. But people who identify as centrists will have you believe that we can just come to a middle ground consensus by being nice to each other and by just listening, by being in the middle. And that's tough. That's tough. That is something I have yet to wrap my head around. 
um, why someone would want that, why someone would be able to get out of bed in the morning and decide, I am going to equate both sides of the political spectrum as if they're the same because it makes me look like a really cool guy um, or girl because there's tons of women centrists. And I guess there might be even non-binary centrists, but I don't know. Why someone would think that is beyond me. It's beyond me. And so I leave you with this. <laughs> Some things are non-negotiable. The life, liberty, and freedom of groups of people is not negotiable. The idea that the earth is dying is not negotiable. The idea that 99% of people should not, or, or I forget what the statistic is, the 1% and the 99%, the 1% of the world having more wealth than the 99% of the world, that, that stat should not sit well with anybody, right? That is not negotiable. So... If you're a centrist um, and you're someone who, you know, prides yourself on on seeing in the middle, um, please remove yourself from all political conversations. Please don't ever become a policymaker, at least. You know what? You're allowed to talk about politics. That's it, centrists. You can be on CNN, but please, 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 please do not write policy. Because if you write policy, centrists, you, we will never come to a world where our biggest boldest problems are met with big bold solutions right so there we go here's to no more half-assing legislation here's to full liberation of people without compromise and here's to understanding that politics should not be about performance and it should not be about appearing a certain way because of your likability and your reelectability, but it should be a space where people who have the solutions to our problems are invited to succinctly and boldly exclaim these solutions. And so, I don't know, if you are running for office, if you were listening to this podcast and for some reason you are filing your papers to run for office next cycle, wherever you are in the world, um, please note that people don't need someone lecturing them on being patient or being a good person or hearing the other side out. People need to eat. People need to pay their rent. People need to stop living in gentrified neighborhoods. People need the earth to stop dying or at least slow down the dying or get better at not killing it. And people need a world that is fair and equitable and real and recognizes their human potential. And that is not up for debate. That is not up for compromise. There is no middle ground on, on liberty and human life. That's all I have to say. I think that is, I think if I speak more, I will probably talk in circles. But that concludes um, episode one of the lunar, did I call it lunar? Am I fake? I'm a bad host, guys. Loon Magazine. Um, the Loon Magazine podcast. This was so much fun to talk about with you guys. Please feel free to give us some feedback. Let us know what you're thinking. If you're a centrist, did this change your mind? Are you thinking of becoming a centrist after this? Did I do the opposite of what I set out to achieve? Um, if you are still going to be a centrist after this episode, you know, let us know why. LoonMagContact at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about this episode. Um, and, and if this changed your mind, tell us why. Maybe we'll talk about it in a fourth installment. I don't know yet. We'll see where this goes. I'm incredibly excited for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Be peace.